When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Hello, Joe, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tracy. How are you? Good. So before we get into why you're here, why don't you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Joe. I am a black man of mixed race. Uh, I am an engineer and a bit of an activist and both uh, in black issues and also social justice in general, really. I'm also a YouTuber, been on YouTube on and off for the last about 11 years or so, you know, I have an engineering firm. So I'm kind of I'm kind of all over the place. I'm glad you've come on to talk to me today is that you have a personal project that you've been working on as well for quite a while now. I've been doing uh, my genealogy really for the last 20 years, but really seriously the last eight to 10. Things really opened up and got a lot easier thanks to the DNA and, and a bunch of the other tools and more and more documentation getting electronic, you know, turning into electronic format. So it's a lot more searchable and that, that's opened up a lot of vistas in that area. So what got you interested in this? Being a black man, you know, again, mixed race, on my father's side of the family, I didn't really know the family very well. I didn't grow up in my father's house. I didn't grow up with him around for much of my childhood. So I didn't really know too much about where that side of the family came from. I mean, I knew my father's from Alabama and I knew we had been enslaved at some point, but it was all very nebulous. And even my father, I mean, he didn't really know a lot either. I mean, he knew his parents and grandparents uh, and a couple, actually, great-grandparents that lives kind of long. But he didn't really know a lot of detail. And, of course, you know, that's that's always the problem for us is, is you know, you run into that roadblock of slavery that, you know, you just you can only go back so far. Everything up to that point was just oral. And, and even then, I didn't really know that much. And so I really wanted to f- kind of find out more. And you felt, as you started to learn more, that this was not just something that you were interested in, but became something that was very important that you felt was important, not just to you, but to black people in general that have grown up in the U.S. When you really look at it, we are a people in diaspora. You know, that's really the best way to describe it. All of us really, you know, unless our ancestors came over post-1865, we don't have a knowledge of our ancestry. We don't know what nation or what tribe our our ancestors came from. We don't know what language or culture. We don't know any of that. Uh, A lot of us can't even go back further than, like I said, their grandparents or so. So it's it really kind of weighs heavy, I think, because, you know, you think of any other group. Again, I, I have European ancestry as well, and I've been able to go back really far with that. And, you know, most people in the U.S., you know, you have that sense of, well, hey, I'm, I'm you know, I think in your case, you're Italian, maybe some other things. You know, I'm Irish, I'm, I'm uh, Ashkenazi Jewish, I'm Hungarian and Romanian. And so, you know, you can go back and you can learn about that stuff. And so people can have this ethnic knowledge. I don't want to say pride. I think I think that's probably the wrong word, although I guess I'll use it, you know, because everybody else does. And this comes up a lot in social justice circles. Usually what you'll hear are people who are anti the social justice movement and they'll complain about well why you know why do we have black pride and we don't we can't have white pride but of course you know we do we you know you can be proud of being italian or or german or or dutch or english or whatever because you and you know where you come from we just got lumped in you know when our ancestors came here we just got lumped in together as one big group 
our knowledge of ourselves was, was really taken away on purpose. And so the only reason why we identify as black is because we don't know anything for more than that. We don't know what nation or what tribes that our ancestors came from. So we don't, ha- we can't feel the same way. It's difficult for us to feel the same way as, as a lot of white people at least have the opportunity to, if they care to. And when you were researching this, you got some surprises. You were much more mixed race than you even realized. You know, I knew a bit on my, um, like I said, my mother's side, I, I had a reasonably good idea on that. Although there were some surprises there. Like I knew that I had, you know, German, well, I thought German Jewish ancestry, but I come to find out that actually some of them came from what's now modern Germany. But at the time, it, it, it's also been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's also part of modern, modern Poland. So, you know, kind of a mix. It was funny because I had a coworker that I, uh, years ago, and I was telling him about my, uh, you know, part of my my Jewish ancestry. When I I told him the family name, and he asked me to write it down. And when he he looked at it, and he said he laughed, and he said, "That's not a German name. That's the German spelling of a Polish name." And <laughs> um, then to come to find out that you know, yeah, where where at least my great great grandfather, one of them came from, is is the, in modern Poland. And then find found out that his his wife actually came from what would was at the time part of the Austro Hungarian Empire. Uh, and then on my father's side, this is something I discovered more recently, thanks to DNA, that my father is not all uh, was not all African descent. So he's also got Irish and English in there. And I found that out because of DNA. And uh, so I have that on my my sisters as well. I have a bunch of half. I'll have a lot of half siblings, like at least 17. That was something else that I learned there. And that was something, too, that was kind of eye opening when I was looking at my father's side of the family, because I found a number of mostly women in the family tree that were listed in the uh, census records as mulatta. And in fact, one woman, she was actually living with a white man. This was this would have been 1870, probably her former master. And she had a child who was also listed as mulatta. One of the things that was, was kind of an eye opener that I, I was really surprised to find out when I looked into it, there's always, there was always the talk of slave masters effectively raping their slaves and, and having babies. But when you see it actually in your own family. So in 1808, the importation of slaves was abolished. So from that point on, if you wanted to traffic slaves, you could breed your slaves to one another, uh, or you could do the deed yourself. And very often that's what happened. And so you ended up having people that were the you know, men generally who were basically raping their slaves, the women, and, and making children and then selling their own children for profit, which is a pretty uh, harrowing discovery. And in my case, I actually found out that this definitely went on because I found that I am related you know, the, the family name of the slave owners and all my family were Grubbs. That's not my last name, but that's my father's. I found that I am related to white people that are descended from the Grubbs family. So I'm definitely sure that uh, one or more of the slave owners that owned my family did this to, to one of my great ex-grandmothers uh, at least once. That was kind of a hard, hard thing to learn. Originally, during the colonies, the law was that children born to someone who was enslaved would have the status of their father. So if the father was the person who was enslaved, then the child was enslaved. If the father was a free man, then the the child would be a free man. But a lawsuit by a young woman who sued for her freedom and won saw that law change. And there was a domino effect where then the laws all started to change to become, you have the status of your mother. And not surprisingly, the rules and laws around sex between enslaved people and free people were much more strict when it came to free women, whereas for the men, it was generally looked the other way, even where there were restrictions against it. I mean, we know that there were stigmas because we see through history people like Thomas Jefferson, who were accused, and rightly so, but it was considered to be a slander or a malignment to suggest that he was doing what he was doing. You know, and even after slavery ended, you know, the stigma, uh, in some cases, it was actually against the law, but, you know, particularly with, with black men and white women. Uh, you know, you think about like the Emmett Till case where, you know, just just whistling at a, at a at a white woman, supposedly, which turns out he probably didn't even do. And then he was uh, criminalized and ultimately killed. 
while going through all this, I, I really discovered that the women of my family, you know, I'm thinking now my matrilineal lines so my mother, my, her, her mother, her mother, and her mother, you know, went through a lot of, a lot of hardship. Part of that, you know, I'm going to jump ahead down to my grandmother for a second. You know, my grandmother had five, turns out five children, but when I was growing up, we all, we only knew of three. So my mother was, as far as we knew, the third of three children, but it turns out that she actually had five and the first child was actually before my eldest aunt that I was aware of. So my Aunt Ruth, my Aunt Evelyn, and then my mom was the order. Turns out that I've got uh, an Aunt Barbara who's older than all three, and she's actually a full sibling to the two. What I discovered, you know, one of the secrets was that my grandfather was a bigamist. So when he died, and my grandmother didn't know, and when he died, that's when my grandmother discovered that he had been a bigamist. And I guess because of his, his premarital status, when he got my grandmother pregnant with the first child and they weren't married yet, she had to give it up for adoption. And I was able, able to ascertain that this was actually a private adoption, so it didn't go through any official channels what I've been able to ascertain is she basically walked into a hospital, gave a fake name of, of the woman who was going to be the adoptive mother, and then walked out and then you know never saw her, her baby again. Because, of course, being an unwed mother, even if, even if the father was around back in the early 40s, the onus was on the woman, not on the man. You know, and this is something that I think over the years, my grandmother tried to tell me about, but she could never say directly, you know, she used to say how, well, things seem different now, but they really weren't that unwed, unwed women had children way back in the day, but it was hidden. And, uh, you know, that, you know, the woman would go away for a while and then a family friend or uh, an older uh relative would suddenly have a so-called change of life baby and they that's where they would leave the child and i realize now that she wasn't talking about you know in the generic she was talking about herself even years later she couldn't bring herself to say it because she grew up at a time when that would have been so stigmatized that i think that she couldn't bring herself to tell us and then similarly her youngest child my uncle steven he was born after my grandfather died you know my grandmother was dating and she got pregnant and based on the documents that we were able to locate, her mother and her sister convinced her not to keep the baby, even though she wanted to. Now, in both cases, my aunt and my uncle, we actually found them thanks to DNA. We found my uncle first and we, I logged into Ancestry and I was just checking my matches and I see that I got an email message from somebody and it was my uncle and he said, hey, I think we're related. And then going through everything and figured out what had happened. And then about a year later, he came to visit. And while he was here, I got another DNA match to another close family member. Uh, it's my cousin, Herman. So I matched him and I was wondering, uh, who's this Who's this guy? You know, so I found him on Facebook and looked him up. And then one of his, his mother actually reached back to me and figured out that her mother was, was my aunt. And so now the family has grown. So it's been interesting uh, getting to know one another and, and incorporating uh, one another in, into the families. Now you had a note here that your last formerly enslaved relative died in 1957. Correct. Yeah, that was my uh, great-great-grandfather, Jack. Yeah, so he, he was uh, born in like 1845. He lived for, you know, to be very old. He died in 57. And this is, I try to tell people who try to say that slavery was like a million years ago. You know, he died in 57. And my, my oldest sibling was, was born in 1953. I have a sibling that, or actually two siblings that were alive when our oldest enslaved ancestor, formerly enslaved ancestor died. And I've got living relatives who, who knew him. So that's how recent it really was. That shows, you know, just how close, you know, that, that all this stuff is. And how I was, I was born in 68, so he only died 11 years before I was born. So it's not that far. And you also had some notes here about some of the things that you realized during your research about the effects of segregation on the marrying habits of Black citizens. So when I was talking to um, some of my relatives and trying to, you know, fill in the family history, one of my cousins, he was explaining to me why parts of the family came up north. Because basically what happened is at the time, after slavery was over, of course, you had the segregated South. You ended up with black areas. It wasn't just a matter of like within towns, maybe in large cities, but otherwise you ended up with black towns and white towns. And if you were black, you generally didn't go to the white towns at all if you could help it. Or, or you know, if you ever heard the expression sundown town, where basically, you know, it was okay to go there during the daytime when the sun was out, but, you know, you better get your ass out of there when, when it gets dark, because uh, that's when the vigilantes come out, you know, they come out. And if you, they find a black person, they're going to harm you. Basically, what ended up happening was my family's from rural Alabama. 
people didn't have cars back in the day. So the, the only people, you, you, the population you had to marry from were people who lived in the local village or the local town. In some cases, you know, in a, in a rural area, that didn't add up to that many people. What I found going through the through you know through the uh, ancestry records and also talking to relatives is that families kept had would have multiple marriages between members of the same family. So you had to be careful because if you weren't paying attention, you could end up marrying a close cousin. In fact, that's actually why my grandmother decided to marry my grandfather is because they weren't closely related. <laughs> it was that simple. What were some of the challenges that you ran into? I mean, I can understand why it would be hard to find records for your family that was on the side that was enslaved, but how have you gone about doing that? What's what's has helped in the last probably 10, 12 years is that as the interest in this has, has grown, people have been doubling their efforts as far as trying to scan whatever data is available on paper and, and get it you know, into the computer. And DNA has really, really opened things up more than anything else. The paper records are nice, but the DNA is, is really king because the documentation is very often uh, mistaken or there's errors. One thing that's very, very common to see uh, somebody's birthday may get moved up a year or back a year. It'll have the still be still usually the same date, but the, a different year. So, you can't always depend on it, but the uh, the DNA record doesn't lie, and that has really opened things up. I found one cousin, you know, about two years ago, uh, that lives in Atlanta. And again, this is again an artifact of segregation. You know, what I call soft segregation. This was upstate New York, so her father was black. He's a blood relative of me, and her mother was white. They had a relationship. They had two children, but of course. That was not going to fly in upstate New York, uh, even though there, there weren't segregation laws necessarily on the books, but just societally, that wasn't going to track to the point where uh, my cousin would tell her mom, mom, I'm pretty sure I'm black, you know, at least partially black. And her mom would tell her, no, she's that she wasn't, which is ridiculous. If you, if you saw my cousin, you'd know right off the bat. So she did the DNA and she finally told her mom, look, mom, stop lying. I've got, I've got the DNA to, to prove it. Um, but it's opened up a lot of vistas Just because she didn't grow up with her father around. He, I guess he kind of stalked her and her sister just to kind of keep abreast of what was going on in their lives. But he couldn't be, he wasn't allowed to be in their lives. So she knew nothing of, of that side of her family. So the DNA, she, she matched me, she matched a couple other relatives and we were able to narrow down her father and then, as it turns out, my cousin Carrie used to hang out with her father. So she, now she's able to fill in all the stories about what her father was like and what he used to do and, and all that because she, she had no way to find out. So DNA is really opening up a lot of things. There, there are some gaps in, in the documentation as well. Like in the 1890 U.S. Census, the bulk of it was destroyed in a fire. I would say as far as all the tools go, there are a lot of different sites that do, do DNA. There are a lot of sites that you can use to track, you know, go through the documentation and, and build your family tree and everything. I, I find that the absolute best for keeping track of a family tree is Ancestry.com. They really have the best search tools. They have the best tools for building your, your family tree. And then on top of that, you throw on the DNA. You know, any of these, the system is constantly trying to match you to uh, people you're related to. So there's, they're constantly updating and they're also trying, at least in the case of Ancestry, they're also trying to match your tree. So you build a tree, someone else builds a tree. If the system thinks it's got some confluence between the two, it'll give you a little, little hint, a little leaf to say, hey, I think we got a connection here. And then you can follow that up. Uh, I've also done 23andMe. 23andMe is useful, but I don't think it's as good as Ancestry. On Ancestry, I'm finding probably equal amounts of people from my mother and father's side, maybe actually even a little bit more from my father's side. On 23andMe, I'm finding a lot more on my mother's side, even though my mom's only like a quarter Ashkenazi, she's actually probably half of the DNA matches she has are Jewish. So it seems to be a lot of Jewish people have selected that as their preferred location. So if you're Jewish and you're looking up your ancestry and you want to, you want to find relatives, 23andMe might be a better, a better choice. You also had on the list that there was some family abandonment that you learned about and also some family violence. 
my, my step-grandfather, you know, he was a provider, but he was very reactive. So he could be very, you know, domineering. And he, I never saw him hit my grandmother when I was a kid. But I, my understanding from talking to my mother is that when she was younger, he was very handsy, you know, as far as, you know, violence and also, you know, attempted sexual violence on my mother, which I didn't find out about that until recently. So that was it. So that, that really messed my mom up, as you would imagine. When I was a kid, my mom was, was kind of reactive. My father was 35 when I was born and my mom was 19. What happened was my mother uh, was living with my aunt as a boarder and was working in the house, in my father's house, cleaning, watching my siblings and, and, and so forth. Uh, and she was actually dating one of the guys who worked for my father. My father, his wife had had my brother, Ronnie, uh, a few months earlier. So, you know, I guess his, his wife was not looking to uh, have relations yet. And so uh, he trapped my mom in the basement in the, uh, where, the, where the washing machine was. I, w- I was the product of that. You know, that was something harsh. And it was very difficult because, you know, for my mom, but also trying to understand, because my, my siblings were not aware of this until recently. They kind of resented my mother because they kind of felt like their father was running around and they, they kind of, well, again, put the onus on the woman, not, not the onus on the man who was married and has a bunch of children, you know, put the onus on the woman because, well, what did she do to, you know, to woo him? And meanwhile, you know, she really didn't have a lot of choice, or at least she didn't feel she had any choice in, in the matter. So my sister, Denise, you know, she kind of knew, she kind of understood. I'm learning more about my father as I go, because um, again, I didn't grow up with him around. He was physically abusive to my siblings and to his wife. He also was, we, you know, had committed sexual violence against a couple of my sisters. It was kind of, kind of a pretty dysfunctional, uh, dysfunctional thing. She, so I was, we were living in my, my aunt's house. Uh, and then at some point, my father's wife figured out that I was not Joe Stevenson's child. <laughs> I was actually, actually her husband's child. And then, so then she made us, uh, she made us leave. So that was kind of rough. I'm, I'm so glad the strides that I've made, you know, in my life, you know, the whole, the whole thing dealing with social justice is really about, you know, becoming a better person and treating people better. You kind of ending these cycles of violence and cycles of assault and all these kind of things. So when you go back and you look and you realize what people went through, it also does help you understand too, because my mom, you know, she was violent when I was a kid, helped me understand what she went through. She was traumatized. It's not always the case, but a lot of people who are traumatized end up becoming traumatizers themselves. The next point that you had on your list was about bigotry in the family for both anti-Black and anti-Jewish. My great-grandmother, you know, she married a Jewish man. What's funny is the story that I was told growing up was that we didn't know the Jewish side of the family as well. And that, and that when, when my great-grandfather died, that we were kind of cut off from the Jewish side of the family. And, she, and my grandmother seemed to put the onus on the Jewish side of the family. But come to find out, I, I actually was able to uh, track down one of my grandmother's first cousins from the Jewish side of the family. And she filled me in on a lot of going on. And it turns out that my grandmother actually worked for one of her aunts on and off when she was, you know, times when she was trying struggling to find a job and that really the bigotry didn't come from the jewish side my great-grandfather when he when he you know, married my great-grandmother and he was worried because his his mother was orthodox his father wasn't but his mother was orthodox and he was really afraid that she was going to disown him because she married he married someone who wasn't jewish but he ran into his father in manhattan one day and his father was like you know mo where have you been what's going on we haven't seen you in months we're worried and um and he's like well dad you know i, I married a girl and she's she's catholic and he's like well we don't care just come home <laughs> we, we miss you we want to know that you're safe so i've surmised that the bigotry actually came from my great-great-grandmother on the hungarian side and that's kind of backed up by the fact that my great-grandmother was also uh, her and her sister are also a bit of uh, bigots i never met my great-grandmother grandmother uh even though she was she lived until i was 10 she refused to see me and apparently i was known as that child so she resented me because my father was black as if i had anything to do with it you know <laughs> as if i well, chose and as if it was a problem 
Well, exactly. As if it was a problem, which it shouldn't have been. And two, as if even if it was a problem, as if I had anything, you know, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I'm just a product of that relationship. Uh, but she she never saw me. And my cousin, uh, two of my cousins, she did see, she, you know, they she was upset at first because like I said the one was, his, uh, his mother wasn't married at the time. But if she eventually softened to that and did see him and he got to know her, you know, fairly well, the last two, probably three or four years of her life, he used to go and see her like probably every three months or so. So he got to spend quite a lot of time with her and I never did. Now, the other thing too about it is like when I was first born, now my grandmother was tickled. My grandmother, you know, uh, my grandmother didn't have a, a bigoted bone in her body, thankfully. I, I don't know how she escaped it with such a bigoted mother, but she didn't have any of that. But my my step-grandfather, he he was like, a, I guess, a soft bigot, what I'll, what I'll say. You know, he was one of these people that would kind of believe, you know, everyone's all all okay, but he didn't believe in the mixing of the races as far as, you know, having children and stuff like that. He was totally against it. He told me uh, once that when I was first born and he and my grandmother came to came over to see me, and so my grandma's going all going all goofy over me and everything and he refused to even look at me and then something somewhere inside of him made him say you know and he this is a quote of as best i can he said who the hell are you old man this little baby has had nothing to do with whatever you're mad about <laughs> and, in, and in an instant his heart changed so that was kind of amazing you know that just you know being confronted with that and realizing that he was being ridiculous for whatever whatever he thought of miscegenation, that he shouldn't hold that against me, and so then he, you know, and and he and to his credit, you know, he did do a, a fairly good job of trying to provide for me and, and make sure that I got through college and all that. So, um, you know, for with all his problems, you know, he was kind of a tyrant, but you know, on the other hand, he he, he at least held up, you know, that part of the bargain anyway. And so you also found out that you had some interesting folks in your history. This is on my grandfather's side of the family. Again, because he was a bigamist and because my, my grandmother did, did meet his mother and his siblings at some point, which is very strange to me that they knew he was married and yet they said nothing to her, <laughs> you know. But in any case, she had met them. We knew where we knew her name. We knew where she had come from approximately. But we really, really didn't know anything else beyond that. When I started getting into this, it was kind of tough because... My grandfather's last name is extremely common, and that's actually a tough thing. You know, it's it's easier when someone has a rare name because you know if you find any records, they're probably <laughs> they're probably your relatives. If you have a common name, that can be extremely difficult. You know, so but tracing so it was a little easier going through my great grandmother because her last name was was uncommon as well. And so I finally found her mother's maiden name, and it's Huzzy H U S S E Y. But it ultimately traces back to England and further back from that to France. William the Conqueror, when he conquered, you know, came over in 1066, one of his vassals was a man named Hubert Ouse, H-U-S-E. He was put in charge of Kent and Dorset under William. Hubert had married William's illegitimate sister. And then, and then of course, their children and grandchildren, they all intermarried and all that. So any, anyone who has this last name, H, any variation of U, so H-U-S-E, H-U-S-S-E, H-U-S-S-Y, H-U-S-S-E-Y, H-U-Z-Z-Y, all these different variations, they all trace back to this man, Uber Uz. So at the very least, if you have this last name, you're at least a first cousin, like 30 times removed from uh, William. And there's a decent chance you're also a descendant of his as well. I'd gone on to England in uh, 2014 in the Southwest Midlands, and I actually went to one of Uber's castles. At the time, I didn't know that I was actually, you know, descended from him. But it turns out later, like, hey, my, my ancestor actually owned that castle at one time. It was, was kind of kind of a cool finding once I once I found that out. So I've got uh, royalty and, and and enslavement. So I've got both extremes in my <laughs> in my lines. Prior to doing the research, how did you identify? I've always identified as either as either black or mixed race, but I generally I usually say black. And as I got older, more often I usually say black, you know, unless there's a reason to differentiate. And this is something that comes up for a lot of a lot of us. A lot of people ask me, you know, how do I identify in America, regardless of how you feel about yourself, you're going to be perceived a certain way. 
even though technically speaking, I've got more non-African DNA than I've got African DNA. I'm like 45% African and 55% predominantly European with a, a touch of Asian in there, which mostly comes from the you know, Hungarians. To, to look at me and know my skin tone and all that, no one in America is going to accept me as a white person. <laughs> you know, so it's really not a choice. So, so that's why I've had people say to, say to me, they get irritated. Well, why, why are you identifying as anything or why is it a big deal? Like I didn't choose it. It was given to me. I didn't, it's not really something that I could choose. Now I identify as the various bits because they're part of me. But at the end of the day, I'm a black man in America. The whatever that 55% of me that's mostly Caucasian doesn't buy me anything <laughs> in America. It doesn't give me any advantage at all. I mean, if anything, it's maybe because of the way I talk, because I don't sound like, uh, you know, I don't have a stereotypical black voice. But other than that, it doesn't buy me anything. I think it would be kind of you know ludicrous to try to identify as anything but black. No one's going to accept it, even if I even if I chose it. And what are your thoughts on colorism? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Colorism is definitely a problem and something that I've experienced. When you get into Black culture, colorism kind of works both ways. I mean, generally speaking, in our society, colorism generally favors lighter skinned people and and disfavors darker skinned people. But in certain circles, it works the opposite. It's less of an issue than it used to be. But certainly back in in like the 70s and 60s and maybe even early 80s, there was very often a resentment toward the lighter skinned people because of the perception that you had it easier. Definitely in white society, the lighter you are, (laughs) the better it usually is. But in in black societies, it's sometimes the other way around. But again, it very, very much varies. I remember as a kid, you know, hearing the expressions, you know, like a red bone and high, high yellow and chocolate and mocha and all these different, all these different terms, which basically were just slicing us up into smaller subgroups. I think that's far less prevalent today. Uh, I think there's definitely more of a, maybe not black unity, but we're letting fewer things split us up anyway, which is good. And there's also a rejection in some circles. Even if you are someone who might be favored because of, of lighter skin, there's a rejection of that, of like not wanting to accept it. And I guess I, I kind of did that to a degree. When I was going to college to Rutgers, I got offered a what amounted to a full scholarship. It was education-based, but it was, all, it was also race-based. And I turned it down because I didn't want people to at some point in the future, be able to say, well, you only got what you got because you're black. You know, at the time I, I didn't really realize that, Hey, you know what? Everybody else takes whatever advantage they get. And that I was already at a huge disadvantage <laughs> just being black. So I should have just taken it. But you know, that was, that was the attitude I had at the time anyway. You've talked a little bit to me about some of the things you've done simply due to consciousness of how you're perceived. I, I, I hate stereotypes. I, I don't want to be perceived as a stereotype. To be honest, up until fairly recently, I I used to get annoyed at people who did fit whatever stereotype that was about them. I kind of learned that that's that's kind of wrongheaded, but I did not eat fried chicken or watermelon in front of white people that I wasn't related to or close friends with until I was 35. And it turns out that's actually a thing. I think you shared with me like a comedy clip Yes, yeah, that was uh, Wanda Sykes. Like white people are looking, <laughs> you know, and we are we are conscious of that. That you know we're being watched and and we're being perceived. And it's funny because of course you know any white peer person could eat fried chicken and no one's going to say or think anything about that or watermelon. I think most people like fried chicken <laughs> and watermelon. But yeah, we know we know we're being perceived, and that's what makes it kind of tough because if you do something wrong and you're white, no one says, "Oh, those white people." They just say, oh, that guy, that person, that woman, that per- you know, that man, whatever. But if I do something wrong, there's a chance at least some people are going to look at that and they're not going to just look at, well, Joe did something wrong. They're going to look, oh, black people did this or black people did that. I mean, I will say there are people that are going to say, oh, those white people. But the difference is it's not the people in power. True. Right. So it's the people that look at you and perceive you as white and say, there goes that they have words like Karen and things like that. If 
the person who calls that out is not generally the person making the laws and the rules and owning the businesses and owning the, the majority of capital and power structures and power positions in the society. So when it comes to the folks who hold the power and how they perceive other people, they don't perceive themselves as, quote, white as far as like a demographic, even though they behave in ways that protect that demographic. That's true. And so that is something that, that we're always, you know, I'm always conscious of. I mean, less now than I used to be when I've done things that weren't even necessarily wrong, but maybe they weren't optimal or whatever, but people were critical. And I found that very often the criticism is stronger, more pointed, you know, and it's very hard to deal with sometimes because it's like, I'm not doing anything different than anybody else, but you're treating me worse. You know, my infractions are always worse than, you know, the other guy. And it wears on you after a while. So you, you become hyper aware of, of, again, how you're being perceived all the time because you have to, particularly with a white woman or sometimes Asian. If I get in an elevator, I never had this issue with a black woman ever and rarely with Hispanic women for some reason. But, you know, you go in and you see somebody tense up. Maybe they pull their, per- their purse a little closer to themselves or they get that nervous look on their face. And so I spend a lot of time in elevators just facing the corner away from anyone, if it's just me and a woman in, in there, because uh, to try to put them at ease so they don't freak out and think that I'm going to hurt them. Part of it, I, you know, I know I'm a big guy, but the fact that it's, it's never, ever happened with a black woman ever. This is the thing that's been interesting for me. And this is, again, why the genealogy was so important for me is that I grew up in my white grandparents' home. You know, they did their best, but they didn't know anything about black culture or black history. You know, they made me aware, they made me aware that there were people out there that were going to hate me because of this color of my skin or my ethnicity or whatever. And they told me to defend myself and never to put up with it. But there's only so much they could do. You know, they just didn't have the context to really be able to enlighten me or educate me further than they did. So I had to kind of learn it out the hard way. You know, the colorism and, and I certainly experienced a lot of bigotry, um, you know, particularly growing up in the in early 70s. So it was so traumatic. I didn't have any positive frame of reference for being black at all. It was only always ne- negative because either someone wanted to beat me up because of it or someone was resentful of me for it. I couldn't even refer to myself as black until I was like at high school. I used to say people like me. So I couldn't even refer to other black people because it was that traumatic. I said people like me. That's what I that's the best I could do. So I had to learn really what it what it meant to be black, you know, other other than you know the fact that everyone wanted to kick my ass. <laughs> so this was all part of that journey. You know, and now I know that, you know, thanks to DNA, I know that I'm Nigerian and other West African, and I've got probably most of Africa covered. And I'm, I'm actually looking to possibly visit when I perceive it to be safe to do so. You know, that's the thing is that there's there's so many negative experiences that you really have to learn that there are positives. You've talked about this a lot about how there can be like internalized bigotry against the group you're part of. Um, you know, you, you particularly, I know you talk about that a lot with, with in the case of women where they seem to feel the need to denigrate themselves in order to fit in. Right. Denigrate themselves and even denigrate other women. Okay, and because I grew up in a society that is so anti-Black uh, as a whole, I didn't even feel comfortable sitting in a room of Black people because I wasn't used to it. I was indoctrinated with all this negative negativity toward being Black. It wasn't really until I started to get to know my siblings and I would you know, learn to just sit in a room of Black people and not feel awkward. <laughs> that's, 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 that's what I've been through. It's kind of weird. I'm good with it now, but yeah, it took, took a long time. That's when I started to realize when you and other people that I, I know would, would start talking about these things and then it would trigger things in me and I would realize, oh yeah, you know, and then I would start drawing those connections like, wow, yeah, that's how, that's how I was feeling. Has anything surprised you? As I started meeting relatives that I've discovered, mostly thanks to the, to the DNA, how quickly and easily that some people have been incorporated into my life and me into their life, even though we've only met each other in the last few years. So it's weird because we, we, we certainly can have familial connection to people that we're not blood relatives to and have very strong and solid relationships like that. And certainly we can have blood relatives that are awful that we, we don't want to associate with. I don't know if it's a societal thing. I don't know if it's a genetic thing, but there is something about that connection. And I think in the case like went with my Aunt Barb, she looks so much like my Aunt Evelyn. I see the family resemblance. And so right, I, I felt close to them almost immediately. And that's been kind of wild. The other thing too was with, with my Uncle Stephen. Now with that case, it was really more the other way. What happened is when we met online, 
uh, both myself and my mother, we embraced him right away. And he was surprised. And for, for my part was, you know, and I didn't grow up with my siblings when I, after I started meeting them, you know, some of them were cool with me. Some of them were kind of standoffish. I kind of stayed at arm's length because enough of them were, were standoffish that I, I, you know, I guess I was afraid to be hurt. But my sister Lillian, she used to always reach out. She reached out to me way more than I reached out to her. And it's not that I didn't want to. I just felt awkward. And then unfortunately, um, she died in 2014 and she's younger than me. So I I guess I kind of felt like there would be more time and and it turned out there wasn't. You know, I got stuck in that situation where I I couldn't get to know her better. Uh, And so then with with my uncle, I felt like, well, I know what it's like to feel kind of on the outs. And I didn't want him to feel like he couldn't reach back to us and he couldn't be part of the family. I wanted to give him the opportunity. And I told him this, that, you know, if you want, if you wanted to have that relationship that I'm, I'm here and I'll do my part, I didn't want him to miss out in the way that I did. What advice would you give to people who are interested in doing their own research in family history or genealogy? Definitely, you know, sign on to one of the sites. My site of preference is, is Ancestry, although Ancestry is not the only site. And I use more than one site because as good as Ancestry is, it doesn't have everything. You know, no site has everything. So I use multiple sites. I use FamilySearch.org also. I use 23andMe. Get into all these sites. And then there are also ones that are for specific, like I joined a Jewish genealogy site because their focus is on on Jews. And so they have more resources focused on those things. And you, they have tools that you don't find on some of the other sites. Like I was able to find my family name on deportation lists in the 1880s and in the, 18, and in the 1930s, which confirmed some family stories and also helped me understand why my part of the family came over when they did. They saw their relatives getting kicked out and they decided to you know, get going under, under their own power do all of them. I mean, there's a lot of them that have free services. So use all the free services. If you really want to get seriously into it, you really need to get at least one paid account because there's a lot of stuff you just won't have access to. Find a grave. That was another tool that I found very, very useful. And that actually helped me figure out part of my Jewish ancestry. Again, I was stuck. There were some people that we, we were supposedly related to. I remember one of the names from my grandmother and I did a search and I got a hit on find a grave. There was actually an obituary and it said, this man and his wife and then his children. And one of the children is still alive and he still works for the same law firm. So I actually reached out to him and I said, hey, look, you know, we're related and here's how we're related. I don't know really much. And he was the one that actually pointed me to where the cemetery was that the family's buried in. And so he filled me in on some details. And then going there, I got all the information, a bunch of information off the off the gravestones. And that led me to my grandmother's first cousin, uh, who filled me in on further. So in addition to the other sites that I've talked about, Finding Grave is an, another invaluable site for finding this stuff out. And then doing the DNA, a lot of people are a little skittish about doing the DNA. My experience has been great. I actually give out kits uh, as gifts to people. I usually keep a couple kits in my car. If I'm talking to somebody about it and they express interest, I'll run out to my car and say, here, it's yours if you want it. There's a site called GetMatch.com. And what GetMatch does, they don't do tests themselves, but you can download your tests from other sites and upload it to their site. And so now it broadens your search. If you do a DNA match on, on Ancestry, you're only going to match up with Ancestry people. Same thing with 23andMe and FamilySearch and, and so forth and so on. But if you go to GetMatch, now you have people from multiple sites and you, know, you have a better chance for, for making a match. That's interesting. So it's kind of a third-party DNA site that allows people from other sites to upload independently. Exactly, exactly. And so that's been a very invaluable tool. My Irish ancestry mostly comes from County Kerry and County Cavan. I've joined Facebook groups for those two places. You know, what they do is they post their kit number and you can go and then you can run it. I've found a lot of people that I'm at least distantly related to and some that are a little closer than we would have expected. That helps build the whole story because you start to see, you know, people say, you know, you see that you're related to somebody and they say where they're from and you can start kind of narrowing on the map where your ancestors might have been, where precisely they might have been from. It's just based on who you're most closely related to. And I find I find it infectious, really, because when I'm chasing something down, you know, there's a lot of detective work. Like I said, you know, you're looking at documents, the documents are useful, but you have to take them with a grain of salt sometimes. And you have to really kind of figure out where the truth lies. Uh, You're never going to uncover all the secrets. You're never going to find all the detail, but you can usually find enough to be useful. I know the names of my parents, grandparents, 
great-great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. I know all of them. So, and some of the other branches I know even further back. You've got at least a little bit of every one of those people in you, you know, the little, little, little snippets here. And that's pretty cool. You know, you think about the, the butterfly, it's like a lot of things that have to have line up for you to end up being you. The other thing, though, is the DNA really opens up the patrilineal side of the of the research. Like you say, when it comes to paperwork, there's the official record and then there's what really happened. And so outside of the women in your family, without the DNA, there would be no certainty around what the men in the family actually contributed. Yeah, and, that, and that's the reason why in Judaism they trace through the through the matrilineal line because only the mother knows for certain that that's her child. And even that, like you say, you can have these private adoptions, and there were stigmatized mm-hmm. situations around adoption. People that hid the fact of an adoption. Even in the case of mothers, sometimes you can have a situation where you wouldn't understand that somebody wasn't actually a biological mother. This is true. My aunt didn't really, she kind of figured out after her mother died or her adoptive mother died that she was probably adopted. But of course, she had no one to go to 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 verify. The other thing, finding out what I'm doing, this is, it's interesting for me is as a black person, you know, the average life expectancy for black people in America is really small, short, you know, for black men, it's like 56. And for black women, it's like 61 or 62. It's really, really short. But I've been able to determine that most of the people in my ancestry lived to be quite old. My grandmother lived to be 96. My grandfather was 88. My grandfather's father lived to be 90. And his mother, she was 81. My grandmother's parents, you know, that's uh, 83 and, and 92, <laughs> you know. And uh, and then again, the, the one there that would live to be over 100, there's actually one other that lived about 100 as well. So finding out that I'm descended from, despite the fact of, you know, being, you know, formally enslaved and, and, and all the, the hardships of living in the South and, and the diet and the, the treatment and everything that come from people that lived a long time. So maybe, maybe, uh, maybe there's hope for me yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we've covered a lot of ground. Do you have anything else that you wanted to include? Yeah, I would say, you know, for anybody who's thinking about it, I say you really do it. You know, I know I have some friends that are like nervous to do it or whatever. I, I think once you get into it, I think it's fun. Like I said, the connections that I've made, I guess it really is like detective work and it's exhilarating when you, when you, when you make a breakthrough, like I was doing something for somebody and I was stuck. And when I finally found the, the bit that tied the, tied it all together and it was just, I felt like, you know, like Columbo and uh, Perry Mason all rolled into one, you know? And I actually thought about it once I, at some point in time, I'll, I'll retire from engineering. And I, th- I thought I might actually do this like professionally or at least semi-professionally, you know, help people out. You know, particularly, you know, people who are, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are adopted or their parents were adopted and they don't, they don't know the family history and they want to find out. Now is really probably the best time in history to try. I don't think there's any, you know, the, despite the fact that, yeah, there are secrets and some of those secrets may be uncomfortable, but I think the, the worst thing that'll happen is you'll find out that there's nothing interesting, that, that, that you know, that, that your ancestry is boring and nothing happened and, and there was no secrets. But, you know, the, the best you'll have, you know, is, is you'll find out that the, the story was a lot more interesting and, and you, you may find out that you have, you know, relatives that, uh, that you didn't know you had. There are some people who are nervous about it because they're worried what's going to happen to their DNA. Ancestry is a pretty good policy. Again, it was another reason why I recommend them. Uh, I do know a couple of guys that said they didn't want to do it because they were afraid that they do have children out there. Uh, but for my case, uh, you know, if, if I, I don't know of any children of mine, but if they exist, if they're out there, I would actually like them to find me. I don't see any downside to it. Like I said, you know, the, the privacy issues would be the only thing, really. Anyone who knows me, who's friends, if... Uh, they want to do it. Like I said, I, I've right behind me. I've got two. I've got three. Uh, three new kits, and I got two kits in my car. <laughs> so I like to do it. I, I'll say, you know, and again, because I don't have children, and you know, now I'm 52. 
I was on the fence about it. I kind of wanted to, but there's times when I see my friends with their children and sometimes I don't get, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it, but every once in a while, I kind of, I kind of wish there was somebody out there, but so this is why I'm like, well, I get, if they're out there, hopefully they'll take a test and that's what I'm try. I'm taking tests on like every service I can find just in case. Cause there, there were a couple possibilities where, you know, it, it, there may be somebody there and so it'd be nice to know. So you mentioned that your family immigrated. What's that about? Um, you know, the family was based in Alabama, the, my father's side of the family. Well, one of the things that happened, obviously, you know, there's a problem in general with with uh, you know segregation, and, and that was you know very difficult. But one of the th- one of the big impetuses was that one side of the family I had mentioned before, you know, that about the the limits of you know who you could marry and who you couldn't marry. The way the story came to me is that. What used to happen is that, uh, you know, a young black man would like walk to his intended uh, house and he would stay as long as he could until the parents told him, you know, let him know one way or another that he needed to leave. And so usually it was it was dark by the time, you know, you're walking home or, or close to it. What was common was for carloads of young white men with guns to patrol the roads looking for a, a lone black man. And they thought it was sports to stick a gun out of the window and shoot over the guy's head and get him running. And then they would chase him just for fun. That sounds like a dangerous game. Yeah. Well, it turns out one of my, uh, it's not an ancestor, but he's a, a relative. He had a gun too. And so he fired back. Now, again, he didn't fire to hit, to hit them. He fired over the, over the top of their vehicle and they ran. And then of course, you know, that's the thing about, you know, that when there's such a huge power dynamic, you know, you fighting back is what well, you're being uppity. You're at, you got to know your place. So the word came down that they were looking for him. And basically if he didn't leave, they were going to come down and basically like wipe out a whole sector of the family, just, just kill everybody. And they would have got away with it too, because it's rural Alabama and you know, the cops didn't give a shit. So he took off and he left and came up to New Jersey and then that started the emigration from Alabama because other family members over time started to go up and they, and of course, like any, anytime people emigrate, where they go, they, if they know, if they know family or friends or someone, at least from the same ethnic group, they go where, where those people are. So at least they have some little bit of safety. And so over time, elements of the family moved North. Some of us still stayed in the South, but, uh, but that was the first, like really one of the first people to come up North uh, from Alabama. That's how my grandparents ended up here and my father ended up here. And now they still kept the land. The land that uh, my grandparents' house is on and my, my aunts and everything, this land was actually part of the plantation that our family worked. The family that originally owned it, when uh, slavery was abolished, they basically left. <laughs> they sold off cheap to get out because I guess they were afraid of you know the fact that in Alabama at the time, about two-thirds of the population was Black. So uh, they got out and then um, my grandfather, my uh, great grandfather, and then later grandfather worked for that family who owned the land. And then at one point, my grandfather bought it, you know, and since he's parceled out, you know, there's just a lot less of the land within family hands now. But um, but yeah, that, that land is part of where the plantation had been. When I went to see my aunt back in uh, 2019, that was the same trip when I stopped in, in, in Austin to see you and I visited you. I had been there before, but I had been driven by other people and we took different routes and I, it was nighttime. I didn't really get to see, but when I was, when I was leaving, leaving Alabama to go to, um, to visit friends in Mississippi along that, the next part of the route, it was daylight and I started passing all these cotton fields and I started to weep because it really just hit me, you know, the, the reality of seeing field after field of just cotton and cotton, cotton, and knowing that, yeah, this is why my family was here in the first place. And it, and it caught me off guard, too. I really didn't expect it because, I mean, I knew that was the case, but it wasn't until I saw the fields and knew that, hey, this, these are the fields that, that were keeping my, my family in bondage. Another uh, thing that I discovered, I found my father's matrilineal grandfather. I found his voter registration from 1867. It's the first person I found post-slavery who was eligible to vote and, and registered to vote. 
I was not expecting it to be emotional, but I saw I saw that and I saw his name and I I just I just started weeping because it was, it was it really hit me that wow this was as near as I can tell this is the first person in the family on that side of the family who was eligible to vote. You really start to understand at least some of it. You're never going to fill in all the gaps, as I've said, but just seeing stuff like that and knowing okay here's someone who he was determined that he was going to exercise his rights after having no rights for a long time. We're sitting here talking and I just keep thinking that this is what goes into making a black man in America, right? So in the U.S., you have a black person, like you said, with no real history. And when you start to look at the history and how rich that history is, and to really see what so many people take for granted, just something as simple as ancestry. And that everything that you're talking about is literally a single person's story. But also when we talked about how you're perceived, you're like, I'm a black man in America. Yeah. And that's the thing. I did a video about this on on my YouTube channel. You know, the people, again, who get upset about black pride versus white pride. You know, again, it wasn't something that we chose. It was something that was given to us or forced upon us. We, it didn't matter whether you were, you know, Hutu or Tutsi or whatever tribe you were, you were Maasai. None of that mattered. What language you spoke, none of that mattered. You were black. If, if you were lucky, that's what they called you. And that was it. So we all got lumped in to one big group. We embraced it because we didn't have really much of a choice. That was the best we can do. It's, that's the best identity we can have. So when people get angry at us, for expressing that identity, it's like, well, but this is this is what you gave us. <laughs> this is all we have. Don't take right, that away. But you're not supposed to celebrate it. Right, right, exactly. And yeah, and and that's the thing that we're about to be about the disarming. You know, when, when people talk about you know disarming the, these things, we were it was handed to us, and then when we embraced it, then all of a sudden, you know, now it's bad. Oh, don't embrace the thing we told you you had to take. <laughs> you must feel bad. The, the furthest back I was able to get on that line, in fact, the, the man I was just telling you about when I found his uh, voter registration, his mother was named Jenny, and she was born in 1808, and that's as far back as I've been able to get. She was born in somewhere in Alabama. That's, that's it. That's the end of the line, and I probably will never be able to go further than that. If, if there's a record, it's male, age 42, and female, age 17, and like horses, well, especially, you know, one thing that hit me hard, because a lot of times, you know, when, when people talk about, you know, why haven't Black people come up, you know, part of this study that I've done in my family history, and you really start to understand why, you know, that you how, how people were prevented. Uh, one of the things I, I found out, you know, talking to a relative uh, about one of my great uncles is that he had a store in Abbeville, Alabama, and he was successful, and most of his clients were Black. At some point, because he was getting to be too successful, a bunch of white people basically had him declared mentally incompetent, even though he was fine. And then he, he then he was murdered in, the, in, in the asylum because he had too much, you know, and he was being too uppity, you know, he, he was too successful and they didn't like that. So you start to understand how things are the way they are. And you, you drive around when we were down there, when we, we visited my aunts and so that my grandparents' house and everything, we also visited my siblings' mother's, the house their mother mother grew up in. And driving through this neighborhood, and again, this has been, you know, people have been there for, for a long time. And some of the shacks that probably go back to slave times that people live in today because they don't have anything. And of course, if when you don't have it, when you have no wealth, your ability to attain more wealth is. Yeah. Like, are any of these people going to go to college? Right. Unlikely. Exactly. They probably don't even have a good school to go to. uh, And they there's zero chance they're going to get to go to college. They have nothing. So they're not going to be able to get a loan. You know, the only loan they might, might be able to get would be the federally backed loans for, for college, but they're, they're not going to be able to afford it otherwise. Uh, and again, they, they probably haven't had school. So how is somebody going to pull themselves up? It's just not reasonable. And, and a few people in the area have, but for the most part, it's a very poor area and it's rural. Uh, there's no, there's no industrial base. So there's no, not much in the way of a tax base. It's right wing, you know, it's Alabama, red Alabama. So they have right wing policies that don't invest in underfunded communities. So there's nothing. There's no jobs because there's no, you know, have an educated workforce. You don't have any infrastructure. 
So no company is going to start there because there's no money to be made. No one has anything. You know, it's funny. I'm looking at my my family tree here. And I said, I can go back to at, at the very least all my great, great grandparents. And I'm not the first, but I'm one of the first to go to college on either side of the family. My maternal grandmother's brother went to college and my grandmother went to like bookkeeping school, but everybody else, there's nothing. So, you know, I'm, I'm really one of the, one of the first in, in either side of the family to, uh, to achieve, you know, you know, get a degree, you know, and certainly not in a STEM field. I mean, you know, become a chemical engineer by education. And now today they're pricing it out so that it's also becoming difficult for people to go again. You know, I probably should have taken that scholarship. You know, I mean, I've done well enough for myself, but I only paid my student loans off five years ago, and I'm 52. So I so I have empathy for the people that are stuck with uh, big bills because I went through it myself. Yeah, it's definitely a form of gatekeeping. Yeah, it keeps poor white people and most brown people locked out. You know, you've pointed out a number of times how, you know, there are racist things that happen in our society that still affect white people. It's still racist when it happens to a white person. Those policies that prevent them from having to invest in black communities, the spillover is that it ends up dumping on poor white communities as well. Right. They end up being the collateral damage for white supremacy. And of course, then they're bitter because, of course, they are getting screwed over. They're told to hate black people and feminists and gay people and, you know, and unfortunately, a lot of them believe it. I just want to thank you so much for coming on tonight and talking to me. I think this was a very fascinating conversation, and I appreciate you sharing everything that you've learned. Well, I'm happy to do it. Like I said, I'm a big proponent of doing this, and uh, anybody who you know, is interested in this, I think that they should go for it. And certainly, if they want to reach out to me, or you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to point people in the right direction. So I'll I'll send you some links think, that you can put in maybe in the so description. Follow sure. the description. Okay. Great, thank you. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.